Welcome to Designing and Building Your Dream Home. I'm your host, KT. In today's show, we make the case for creating your dream home from a historic home, a landmark home. Many communities throughout the United States have homes that fit into this category. These homes are selected after meeting a combination of criteria, including historical, economic, architectural, artistic, cultural, and social values. The design of these homes can include the mid-century modern homes, which were popular in the 1950s, as well as the Victorian era homes built in the 1800s. Remodeling landmark homes is not for the faint of heart. And yet, those who undertake this journey will be rewarded with a home that will be recognized as an architectural treasure in their community. Our guests today, Stuart Cohen and Julie Hacker of Cohen Hacker Architects, practice residential architecture in the greater Chicago area. They are both distinguished members of the AIA College of Fellows. This is a distinction of honor granted to less than 3% of AIA members. Their expertise is in taking gorgeous historic homes and then remodeling them to serve the needs of a modern family. They do this while preserving and enhancing the aesthetic features which make these homes one-of-a-kind original works of art. Remodeling a historic home is a lot different from remodeling other homes. Historic homes are often located in recognized historic districts. To maintain the character of the community, you'll typically find that the city has appointed a committee. The committee oversees any proposed changes to any property located in that community. And proposed changes which could affect the exterior of the home are especially restricted. If your goal is to make one of these architectural treasures your dream home, you will enjoy today's program as Julie and Stuart walk us through some of the challenges you will encounter and how best to handle them. For example, is the work you're proposing to do on this historic home best classified as a remodel or restoration? Should the proposed changes to the, to the uh, home be indistinguishable from the existing home? Or should it be clear which portions of the home are original to the property and which components are new? What role does contextualism play? in the remodel of a historic home. You'll hear answers to these questions and others in today's show. Stuart, a professor of architecture, also shares a little history of residential architecture in Chicago, and he helps us to appreciate how much beauty landmark homes add to a community and how truly fortunate you are if you get to call one of these gorgeous historic homes your dream home. Welcome to the show, you two. Hi. Thanks. Thank, thank you. Th th thanks for the nice introduction and all the ancient history. <laughs> <laughs> We're old. <laughs> no, you two are our treasures to the 
field of residential architecture. I so appreciate when we have our annual symposium at AIA CRAN that you've been so generous in helping us make connections because we try to curate the content so that all the CRAN members, residential architects from all over the U.S., when they get together once a year, they're really getting the best from the time that they've invested. And you guys have been fantastic in helping us put together content that the architects are going to love. So I wanted to have you on the program because um, I live in an area where mm, modern design is kind of king in the Northwest. And I know that when you guys design uh, custom homes, you're not you're not limiting yourself to just that area uh, of design, modern design. You have a much broader palette. And part of that palette, you really prioritize historic preservation. I had the, the privilege of restoring a building that was 120 years old. And rather than tearing it down, we rebuilt the whole thing. And it was a true joy. It was really a work of art when we were done. So I wanted to have you guys kind of weigh in on this topic um, because the work that I do at the National Association of Home Builders, I'm working with custom builders, I'm working with remodelers, and the, the remodelers always tell me, you know, the custom builders, they're spoiled because they have this blank palette and they get to do everything from scratch. The real geniuses of construction are us remodelers because we have to work oftentimes with some serious challenges. So my question to kind of get us going is, um, it, it does the value of preserving a structure justify the increased effort that it takes to do so? Would it just be simpler to just always start afresh? What do you guys think? Kevin, you know, I think the answer to that is almost on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, you can make the general argument with respect to sustainability that something that was built uh, years ago uh, represents a huge investment in embodied uh, energy. It represents uh, construction that was purchased uh, uh, for uh, uh, a dollar value that uh, today would be hard to replicate. Uh, and that with uh, buildings before a certain period in time, you're actually buying a quality of construction and a quality of visual detail and cabinetry and moldings that uh, while it can be all done today uh, is a very expensive. The, the interesting question is since the bulk of our work is remodeling, uh, when you go to remodel an older house, uh, depending on the details and the construction of the house, you know, what do you do to bring it not just up to to the way we want to live in houses today, but up to current energy standards? Yeah, I, I, I and I want to go back a little bit because I think um, in terms of what Stuart touched on, so many residential architects are uh, really asked to not not tear down because of those costs associated with projects, but to remodel or add on um, because obviously there's a lot of value um, in in, uh, in in a homeowner's home as opposed to just starting from scratch. So um, 
I think I just like to, this is a different question, I think, which is what is the value of, which may not be solely economic of preserving a home and adding on and transforming it occasionally if need be. And what is that value? And it's not. That's a perfect question, Julie. So, and I would say it's not just an economic one, but it's also one of meaning, um, identity, cultural values. Like, where is this house? What neighborhood is it in? Um, what is it about the house that is worth preserving? I mean, there's there's meaning that's um, part of an existing structure. If someone purchases a house and hasn't lived there. And is thinking about, you know, is it a teardown or not? Uh, I mean, it's, it's yes, the embodied carbon footprint, you don't want to take something down if you don't have to. And it's more expensive to take something down and rebuild. Frequently, it's more expensive. You just want to look at those sort of simplistic answers. But there's a lot of other issues that come into play. And um, Stuart and I have both served on the Preservation Commission in the community we live in, which is Evanston, Illinois. Um, And it is very valuable because if you took down all the houses in this area, you would lose a whole sense of history and a whole sense of community. And, And those things, you can't buy them and you can't build them. So it's not just embodied energy, but it's the embodiment of like an entire time period, culture and history and meaning. So I have a question because when I was getting prepared for um, this interview, uh, one of the articles I read touched on this thought that in the world of codes and regulations and historic preservation, there is an argument that when you're adding on to a historic structure, what you add on should be significantly different visually so that you're able to clearly see the difference between the two time frames of construction. But if I'm not mistaken, I read that, Stuart, you weren't all in on that idea. Do you feel the same now that they could they should blend more together? I, I think the idea that that an addition should be clearly dif- differentiated from what it's added on to uh, is a product of of its time, which was the mid fifties, and I think that was also a time when modern architecture was thought of as um, being part of the construction of a ideal and better world than the one we inhabited. I think that's a partially defunct idea, but the the other thing behind the idea of differentiating an addition is with something that's a truly uh, historic or landmark building, I think the idea was, or the fear was that additions would uh, somehow force the building to act as a background and be read as as uh, more important rather than part of and less important. So our take on adding onto structures, and I think I would feel differently if it if we were adding onto uh, you know a, a building by one of the great masters of 20th century architecture, whether it was a commercial building or a residential building, but 
the additions we do are generally, you know, kitchens, bathrooms, uh, uh, additional bedrooms, family rooms. And the idea that you visually make it look different to me has always suggested that it's somehow more important than the thing it's being added on to. And we feel that that's just not the appropriate choice for, um, you know, for adding a kitchen or a bre yeah, kitchen right. breakfast area to a new house. Right. I want to just piggyback, yeah. Stuart, because I also understand, Kevin, what you just said, because I served as a commissioner. And um, if you read the standards, that's one of the standards. I think the question is in the nuance of how you're on, of how you are understanding that standard. So if you do a sympathetic addition um, to something that's existing, to a landmark home, uh, or to just a home in a historic district, you can still do that sympathetically in terms of like understanding the trim systems and the materiality and the roof forms. And so as opposed to just saying, oh, it has to look really different. And I think there has been a sea change in how um, these commissions, at least we know in our community have looked at that so that uh, it isn't so disjointed. Um, and that's the approach that we take because we just see that the architecture should end up being cohesive mm -hmm. and um, that an addition shouldn't, as Stuart said, take over the primary home. Um, shouldn't also yeah. look like it's crashed into the right. side of an old house right. <laughs> you know, or, or something yeah. that that's, uh, uh, landed uh, from outer space next door. <laughs> But I do, I do think that commissions are changing in terms of the way they think about that language. Um, so that even when you talk about, well, you do a link and then you add something on, you know, and, and in school, you sort of did a glass link because you were told that it would go away, which, you know, they never go away. Right. But I think that design methodology, um, you know, I, I, I just think certainly don't use it and it's 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 a fairly simplistic one um and it still exists because we still see additions that look like that yeah. um yeah. but yeah. i do think it's time to kind of change how you think about adding on yeah. i mean uh, an example would be is if you're remodeling or adding on to an older house that has divided light windows one of the things that those windows do with the divisions uh, is to provide scale. I mean, we all understand that they were there a very long time ago because of the way in which glass was manufactured. Right. Today, it's actually visual choice. And the idea that you would have a house uh, and do an addition to it that had, you know, huge undivided areas of glass would actually kind of totally alter your perception of the scale of the mm -hmm. house in a way that we think is detrimental. Having said that, we've made houses, additions to houses where we've done rooms that were largely glass. And what we did do simply is to gang together um, divided light windows that are very large in scale, but the divisions still bring it back to the scale of the house, bring it back to human scale. And while they give you uh, a view, because you always look through that glass, 
what they do is they also give you a sense of containment that you're not literally living outside, which in some climates is a very desirable thing, but in, uh, in our climate, uh, when it's gray and dreary and snowy a lot of the times is not something that most people would feel comfortable about. Yeah, you know what? I just want to say this other thing about the standards because I'm really aware of the standards. The standards talk, use that language, Kevin, that you used for making an addition. Um, but they also refer to um, looking at the existing massing, the composition, the scale, which Stuart was talking about. Um, and they sort of try to take into account all of those things of the existing structure um, so that you don't just go off to saying, you know, sort of saying like, okay, there's this one standard that says when you add on, it has to look different because you're still dealing with all the other standards which really want you to look sympathetically at the structure. So it's a little yeah. bit of a, how you interpret all of these together. Yeah when you were chanting, characterized our practice as being context-driven. So for our addition and remodeling work, the context is always the, the character, scale, nature, and materials of the existing house. When we do a new house, the context is generally where we're building it. So that if we're building out in the woods, there is one set of material choices and perhaps one set of design choices, but when we're building in a neighborhood, say, of older houses or a neighborhood of uh, predominantly Georgian style or Tudor style or whatever it is, what we're always looking to do is a house that feels both contemporary and of the place where it's built, which okay. means we wouldn't, for instance, generally do a flat-roofed house. Uh, we wouldn't do a house where the uh, where the front of the house was large, undivided, uh, broken areas depending, of glass. Depending on the community, though. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Depending on 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 the, the nature of the existing surroundings, the existing houses, in the case of an urban or a suburban uh, setting. So, if I'm if I'm understanding what you just walked us through, the most important thing on a restoration is the whole picture and separating it out to like one thing or the other is is subservient to getting the sense of how to restore this property in a way that's sensitive to the whole property uh, and in trying to be sensitive to the whole property the whole experience there can be flexibility on individual components of the restoration. Yes. Yeah, I would say that. So it's not really, I would not even call it restoration. You know, when your restoration sort of implies that you are, you know, by putting book, it, putting it back putting to it the way back it was. exactly the way it had you know, looked when it was new. Right. So I do think everything you're saying is correct, that there's, there, that, that, even though somehow a house is not a living object, it kind of is because it comes with a whole lot of history about it. And mm -hmm. generally speaking, unless, you know, it was built a week ago, but, um, and, and, and so yes, Kevin, what you're saying is right. It's like, there's a, there's a, a history in that. And when you think about it and what it means 
to add on or within a community, you take into account all the things, plus, of course, your clients and who they are. But it is also the responsibility of the architect, and I think in our opinion, that it doesn't look like this thing just imploded and landed from outer space into this community, even if, it, if it's, you know, if it's a, a traditional homes, but let's say it's not, it's all of contemporary homes. Well, I'm not sure you would plunk in, you know, like a French provincial house into that in community. You know, <laughs> I, Essentially modern. I mean, we are not, you know, we're not, we don't think of ourselves as like, we're not strict classicists, we're not strict traditionalists. I mean, it's it's just like being... Well, we're, we're contextualists. Right, basically. being smart about where, thinking about where it is. Yeah. Where is this... I mean, the, the other thing that we do, because a lot of, a lot of the addition work that we do uh, is also remodeling, is that we try to make houses that will last into, you know, well into the new century. Nice. And what that means is that clearly if the house was built in the teens or the 1920s, the way people lived in those spaces is not like the way we live today. Uh, our lives are far less formal. The places where we gather as families within the house, within a house has changed. And we are, um, you know, we, we go into these houses and we'll rip the, you know, we'll rip them apart. We'll reconfigure them. And then once we've done that, once we've interconnected spaces in ways that reflect how people live in houses today, we'll go back and uh, trim them out or case openings or add elements of continuity with the, the parts of the house that led them to buy that property in the first place. The thing, you know, we always try and figure out what it is about an older house that somebody loved visually that led them to say, you know, I want to not only buy this, but I'll spend money updating it and preserving. Right. And then we add those things so that, that there is a sense, again, of the spaces that we've created not being, uh, you know, imp impositions from another time and another place. You know, one of the things that you mentioned that resonated with me was that when you have some of these uh, older properties, you buy them and you get it and there's craftsmanship that to recreate that level of craftsmanship or to find the quality of the materials that were included. I had a building that had all clear Douglas fir, that the fir was probably, it was 18, 1890s is when that structure was built. So to find that kind of material today would be quite the stretch. And the beauty of that wood is hard to describe. And, and, and you go into some of these uh, homes and just the craftsmanship of the wood and the, what those those um, builders were able to do, oh, it would be it would be cost prohibitive to do that kind of work today. So when you start talking about the, the what you get out of some of those older homes, I I can't agree with you more. There's some cool cool properties out there that really just need a little bit of, as you described it, Stuart. Uh, reconfiguration so that the home works better 
with today's modern user. But I want to say that there is an element of speed about this because I know with a lot of homeowners, you know, the uh, that we've come in contact with, you know, think that, oh, this is quick. Like this is a whole quick process. And I think that um, going into like working with an existing home and it doesn't have to be, I, I'm saying we do, we do work on mid-century modern homes. We do what we do work on all types of homes, but it is the care that you think about the project and it isn't necessarily a really quick one. It isn't, and, and it isn't, uh, you know, it, it's, it's different from if you just, I know we've had clients who may not, we might not be the right architects because they want things done like yesterday. And that isn't really how the work goes. I think that in terms of cost, uh, the work, if we were doing a new home, we, and we have one on the uh, uh, boards right now, and you're comparing it to, you know, remodeling or of a historic home. I mean, they both take in lots of time. You know, this isn't like slam dunk. Well, um, it's, and, you know, yeah. they do. It's not a process that's for everybody. Somebody has to want, want something that they can't simply go out and find either in an existing house or even in a, uh, a builder house and the process is a little bit analogous to uh, you know buying clothing you if you buy off the rack clothing you can buy everything from garments that are so badly and cheaply made that you know you'll wear them for a year and they'll fall apart to ones that are it's you know granted more expensive but very well made and then even more elements that where where you know you can tell that somebody has put thought into the design so you know yes there are cost implications for all of those things but you know the the person looking either to buy a house or to buy services from an architect has to understand in terms of the process uh, the time it'll take to to develop the de design and then to build the design and the cost relative to what they budgeted for each pieces of those process, you know, what makes sense for them? If you're just joining us, this is Designing and Building Your Dream Home. With us today is Julie Hacker and Stuart Cohen of Cohen Hacker Architects. I wanted to ask Stuart and Julie about uh, getting started. So let's say I have a home that I love. It's a home that I picked out. It's got some really neat characteristics. It's an older home. Uh, I'm raising my family there. I really love this home, but it's not really set up for modern day use. So if I come to you and say, uh, Cohen Hacker Architects, can you help me remodel this home so that it's more usable for me? Um, I, but, I, but I don't know anything about remodeling or about what's involved. How do you engage with me and help me begin that process? 
first we, you know, we get that call. And then first we want to make sure that we're on the same page with when they, with their program. Most have a program like the principal suite isn't working, this, that, whatever. There's programmatic elements they don't have. Bathrooms are falling, kitchen is falling apart, the doors are coming off the cabinets. Right. So the first thing, I mean, really, the first thing that we do is we try to get a handle before anything on their expectations of budget if they have. If they don't, that's fine. What we do is we set up a meeting and we go to meet them and look at their project, their house, their existing house. And we just let them you know, tell us what it's missing. We walk through with them. Um, and that's really the first entry into problem solving. Okay. And and depending on when the house was built, there are things that will be typically missing. You know, house, houses before a certain period of time didn't have attached garages. Right. Um, you know, in, in, after the Second World War, you had attached garages, but you opened the door and you were right in the kitchen. There was no place to take your muddy boots off or to hang your coat up. Yeah. Uh, so typically, uh, oftentimes people want uh, mudrooms created or second or secondary entrances enlarged. Um, kitchens, if they predate a certain period in time, are small. really there's they're small. Before a certain period of time, somebody, you know, the homeowner didn't cook their own meals. Somebody right. else was cooking the meals for them. And nobody really cared about the design and the layout and the function of the kitchen. So there's that to address. But there's also the fact that kitchens and uh, informal dining areas are now the center of the house. So that if the kitchen was small, if it didn't have a place to have a breakfast table or a, or an informal dining table, often we would be asked to make right. additions. Um, if there wasn't any way to connect that area directly to a living space, then the addition might involve a family room space. But really, it comes just for our clients or potential clients, that information is going to come from them. And um, and we understand we've seen this. We've seen these issues of formal and informal and those notions that have changed over time. So after that first meeting, we would, um, you know, obviously, we'd all make sure that it's the right fit um, contracts, et cetera. But the first thing we do is we would go and we would measure the existing house and whatever we think we're going to be doing to it so that we have accurate, accurate, accurate dimensions. We will also, you know, look at, look at the way things are built to try and determine how, if it's a frame house, which almost all the houses in the Midwest are, uh, we would try and figure out which walls were bearing walls so that we would think twice about taking them down, or if we took them down, we'd know we needed new structure. Uh, we would try and figure out how all of the floor systems were framed. Sometimes if there's an exposed wood floor, depending on the age of the house, you know that it's nailed over sleepers rather than plywood, which means that 
the sleepers run, run across the joists and the flooring runs the same direction of the joists. And, you know, we, we try to do as much of that as possible, but there, you know, we've seen carpenter built stuff from the twenties and the thirties that absolutely made no sense. <laughs> we frame, we've we've, we've so found we plumbing in walls opposite where you would expect the plumbing to come and down so what we try to do is we try to make openings where we so we understand the structure and we try to understand what mechanical systems and the plumbing um is doing so but but as we all know you cannot understand everything so, yeah. okay, yeah. so when you, it is certainly hidden cost of existing conditions um, that will add to uh, the cost of the project that you don't know about. So you put in a contingency for that. And, and usually you find all that out very early on during demolition. So um, the homeowner will know. Um, pretty quickly, but those things, it is true, they are challenges because you just can't know everything. Yeah, I mean, generally that contingency is a modest percentage of the budget, but okay. we've done houses where every time they took something apart, they found something that was uh, either rotting or it had mold on it or uh, for one reason or another was so badly built that it had to be remediated. Right. And we, you know, we weren't just remodeling a house. We, <laughs> we were but literally say, rebuilding the yeah, house. Yeah, but that is, I mean, I want to say, not, it's, it's not typical. typical. And I think that, you know, if, I think that it's true that a homeowner has to really want to work with the house they have, um, and do as, you know, we would do as best as we can to understand everything, but it, it also isn't for everyone. I would say that if you talk about, we're going back, circling back to issues of sustainability, um, that, you know, why would you take something down if you don't have to? Right. One of the things about those issues of, you know, what is a mechanical system like? What is, you know, what's the insulation like? All of those things. Well, we know um, that, Frequently with older homes, um, there were single glazed windows. You know, there were the insulation was bad insulation or no, or blown in or no insulation. Or, I mean, there's a lot of aspects that need to be really brought up to today's standards um, to really make the house livable, but also in terms of energy standards. And those things you have to be cautious about because... Um, you know, you're not, most people don't want to gut the entire house. So you will never see everything. They're not gutting the entire house. So they're, so let's say they're only doing an addition and the rest of the house was insulated. However, it was insulated and you're not going to go and rip down every wall. All the interior so you yeah. need to be conscious of what you're doing and sort of specific, but you can't, you know, particular about what you're doing and aware of costs, but it's not like you're suddenly ripping the whole house. Frequently, you are not ripping the whole house. I mean, we, we will try to spend money uh, in a way that's smart, that gives our clients the most they can get for the construction dollar, both with respect to 
uh, the quality of the space they're going to live in and also with respect to things like insulation. Uh, you know, windows are a great example because, you know, old windows, in addition to being single glazed, um, particularly with double hung windows, were just notorious for the amount of, of cold air that right. comes through them. They were not tight like uh, uh, new windows are. And we have restored windows. There are definitely, if it's a well-made window, there are things you can do. If the if the uh, sash and the frame of the window are thick enough, you can take out and reglaze it with thin thermopane. Right. Uh, or things you can do to stop air coming through uh, uh, between the, the sash and the frame of the window, but you're never going to get the performance quite get the performance of a new window. So frequently on older houses, we are uh, replacing all of the windows and, and window manufacturers have worked very hard to try and make uh, uh, air, airtight thermopane windows that have the look of the windows right. they're replacing. And, and the only that one of the problems is if, you, if you're in a landmark home and there is a preservation commission, then Frequently, with if it's a front elevation, you can't simply take the windows out. So yeah, you're that's true. Storing them, and you're doing the best. Like if you have to have a storm made, um, uh, that's what you'll do because that's what's required, and you've got to weigh those elements against maybe what is higher performing. Yeah, that's I, I do know that to be the case is especially on things like windows. Uh, if you do want to make a change, uh, you've got to match the the new windows. They have to look like the old windows. And in a lot of communities, there's no two ways about that. You can't just go find right. windows and replace them. <laughs> right, right. And every commission and every community might have different standards um, or they might not have any. But then you still have to think about what you're doing, you know. You're listening to Designing and Building Your Dream Home. And with us today is Stuart Cohen and Julie Hacker, principals of Cohen Hacker Architects in Chicago. So I've gotten to know both of them over the last few years because we're involved in the AIA's Custom Residential Architects Network. Uh, Julie is on the um, advisory group. And I'm on the executive committee, and Julie has been instrumental in working with both her local Cran chapter in Chicago and Cran National and in putting together content, tours, uh, home tours, that is, and other um, tools that can help architects who primarily design residential structures get a broader understanding of our industry. Uh, great design, um, ways to really have a meaningful impact, not only on the, the family that owns the home, but really adding to the space that they're occupying, adding to the community. Um, and so what I would like um, Stuart and or Julie you to do is just share a little bit with the listeners about how residential architecture can add to a community uh, and use Chicago as an example. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, in the 20th century, uh, Chicago was considered a mecca for 
architecture and architectural history. And that begins really, um, I think, even before uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, with people who were building here like H.H. Uh, H. Richardson, Sullivan, and uh, John Wellborn Root, all of whom built houses. Richardson's Glessner House, which is now a museum house, which you can visit, is an absolutely brilliant solution to an urban house where the exterior is very enclosed and private, and there is a south-facing courtyard, which is uh, almost, I mean, for, for its day, it's heavily glassed in or windowed, uh, and it's kind of uh, wonderful in terms of the way the space is open to that courtyard. Frank Lloyd Wright and the, the architects he worked with and surrounded and who worked for him uh, literally invented the concept of the great room and uh, along with uh, uh, things happening at the turn of the last century in, uh, in England, uh, invented the idea of the house that opens out to the garden and to the landscape uh, and the interior continuity of spaces. Uh, that's all pretty well known with respect to Chicago, but there are also other interesting histories here. Um, one of the first manufacturers of, of metal paneled prefabricated houses was a guy named Howard Fisher, who practiced here in the 1930s, uh, along with uh, him at that period of time and practicing up, in, up until the 60s was a guy named George Fred Keck who did amazing uh, modernist houses. Uh, you know, ev everybody knows the residential work of people like Marcel Breuer, uh, uh, Edward Larrabee Barnes, people like that on the East Coast, but Keck uh, built uh, amazing uh, early modernist houses that were steel and glass. Uh, and then uh, mid-century modern houses with more uh, domestic materials, uh, probably somewhat influenced by the direction Frank Lloyd Wright's work had taken at that point, long after he had left Chicago, but houses that were stone and glass and, and wood. And that tradition has carried, uh, carried through uh, to, the, to the present day. Yeah. So there are architects doing uh, traditional work and architects doing um, uh, modern work. I mean, we've, I mean, I wanna say this, We've taken our cues from all of those uh, architects, architectural figures in terms of our own work because we embrace sort of this open floor plan, more contemporary space with traditional detailing. And I think that all comes out of this rich history of uh, Chicago residential architecture. Um, it is kind of amazing, you know, Chicago, they always say you build things well to uh, withstand time. Um, I think that's true, thoughtful and practical. Um, and then there's this whole sense of innovation and, um, in, and invention. And I think uh, it's, I am sure in other communities you find it as well, but in Chicago, it is like living and breathing. Yeah, but I mean, what's interesting is how other than Frank Lloyd Wright, how little attention is paid to the residential work that's been done over the years in Chicago versus the development of, of first the skyscraper and then the super tall. 
Right. You know, Peacock building was 100 stories high, and the engineering for it came out of SOM and a man named Basler Khan, who reconceived the idea of a structure that was basically responding to wind loads more than gravity loads. And now uh, Adrian Smith, who has his own firm having retired from SOM, is the go-to guy for super tall buildings. And Adrian is doing amazing things in terms of making those buildings uh, basically energy self-sufficient because of winter embedded wind turbines and uh, all of the other stuff that he's exploring. But while Chicago has always been recognized for this history of commercial and high-rise buildings, uh, paralleling that, I think there's been this amazing kind of, kind of development of, uh, of residential architecture. I mean, personally, in terms of our practice, uh, uh, at least I've always been interested in the work of somebody called Howard Van Doren Shaw. And I did a book on Shaw a few years ago. Shaw was a contemporary and a friend of Wright. He was a traditional architect. He was an Anglophile, so his work has been described as influenced by English arts and crafts. But he was exploring exactly the same issues of uh, continuity of interior spaces and connection of interior spaces to exterior patios, terraces, and gardens that Wright and the Prairie School were looking into. And I think that our work, in terms of what Julie was saying before, really looks to all of those things. You know, we have a sympathy for, uh, for the sort of richness and, and associative, associative meaning of traditional houses, but we try to make traditional houses that are as contemporary as anything that was done in the 20th century in terms of the interconnection of spaces and the way the houses connect to the outside. I have a question for you, um, Stuart. If what, what you just laid out, you and Julie, it just reminds me of how much joy can be had when you as the homeowner are working with an architect who can help you to understand the bigger picture. And when you're talking to your guests, you're coming over for dinner about the windows or the doors or any of those other elements that are included in your remodel, their eyes light up because you're able to kind of tell them the backstory and people really uh, enjoy knowing more about what's going on. And I kind of am getting the same sense and having you walk through the history of um, briefly of residential uh, design in Chicago. And I I'm just wondering, you don't charge extra for that knowledge. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, it just comes with, it, it comes with the territory. It's included. Okay. So I love that. I mean, I, I would say that um, that building a home, a new home, or adding on um, or remodeling, you have to be committed to a project that's going to be some money invested. And it's it may not be, it may be, in, in terms of your life, significant, right? And a lot of people don't build more than one home. Those that can are, that's 
you know, they're really lucky. Many don't. And so to really seriously think about what it is you want and how it's connected to the great architectural past in your community of residential work, if it can find its past, some we know some communities don't have that like we do here in Chicago, but um, I think sort of finding that and that excitement um, is really important uh, because, you know, why do it? I mean, if you want, you know, you can get a new toilet or get a new vanity or something, but if you're really thinking holistically about a project, you know, why not do the research? Why not get excited? Why not find the right architect you want to work with? Um, you know, why it, it should be collaborative and it should be, in spite of its difficulties, like, I, I'm going to use this word, not lightly, but fun. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just going to say it should be enjoyable. It should be a learning process. And um, because otherwise, like, you know, why do it? Yeah, when you can yeah. go out and, buy, and yeah. just buy a building house. Let me ask you this. Um, you, you have been very involved in both the AIA and CRAN. Um, does your your membership in and involvement in CRAN local and CRAN national does that benefit your clients? You know, I, can I say this? Sure. Okay. Um, here's the way I think about it. I don't really know if it benefits the clients, but it benefits the community of architects. This is why I know I think Stuart has taught for so long and I'm so much a part of the AIA and Fran, you know, doing programming. It's because there's a lot of information that you want to share with other architects to make us all better. And mm -hmm. when there's, you know, one, it's so it's, it's, it just is trickle down. So if you are a better architect, you will do better work. You will serve your clientele hopefully in a better way. And I think all that's important. I am not even sure, many of our clients, they don't really know that we're a part of, you know, CRAN or even what it is, but I think it's really about the community of architects and sharing the information and the knowledge is really important because as an architect, you can just get really wrapped up in your own thing and not even know there's a community out there in which you might learn something or deliver that information to a client or whatever. So it is important and there's great value to it, but a homeowner might not know it, but they may know it indirectly. Well, they're going to know it because they're listening to this radio show. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I wasn't involved in the AIA until Julie and I um, attended uh, maybe eight years ago, uh, the first uh, National CRAN Symposium. And at that point, I think it was Jeremiah Eck, who was one of the founders of the CRAN group and who is does uh, wonderful kind of rural houses, new rural houses that look like uh, you know, Connecticut uh, cottages and barns somehow mixed together, got up and basically said that the group was, in his words, style blind, that it was about the best residential architecture, not necessarily modern architecture or traditional architecture. And, and I thought, well, I mean, this sounds like something that I could work to support. Frankly, I joined the AIA 
right after I got my license, because for years, my father weekly would say, and tell me, how many more years do you have to work before you take your AIA licensing exam? <laughs> I said, no, Dad, it's the state licensing uh, res- registration exam. But it dawned on me that somehow, as a representative of the public, my dad thought that the AIA was synonymous with architectural licensure. And uh, I think that that's something that the AIA actually did over time. So being a member of the AIA kind of connotes uh, a professionalism, which I think the AIA stands for in terms of practice and uh, uh, ethics and, and all of those good things. Agreed, agreed. Well, um, you guys, this has just been totally a joy. I really appreciate you carving time out of your day on this holiday uh, to share some of these insights with uh, with the listeners. If if someone is kind of walking down that path of saying, you know what, I love this home, but I want to kind of make it more usable for modern day life, and they'd like to to get in touch with you, learn a little bit more, ask some questions, what would be the best way for them to do that? Basically, we're very hands-on, so we really only work in our area. But, you know, we have a website and uh, our, phone, uh, our phone number and our email. We're very accessible. So nice. we'd love to we meet have a, people. We nice. have a small firm, and we're involved in every aspect of the work, and that's the way we like it, and very accessible. And even if we can point someone in the right direction, we're not right you know we're happy to do that um so yeah what's the website www.cohen c-o-h-e-n hyphen hacker h-a-c-k-e-r dot com fantastic fantastic okay so i want to encourage the listeners uh to go to that website and you're gonna love getting a little bit more of the feeling of um, remodeling just absolutely gorgeous homes. And you can tell just for this few minutes of of um, uh, spending time with Julie and Stuart that their passion is residential design. And uh, you're going to just love spending time on their site. And if you have a project that you're working on, feel free to reach out to them for some advice. And hopefully um, they'll be able to help you to design your dream home. If you missed any portion of today's program, uh, you can download it as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stuart and Julie, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. (laughs) We'll look forward to spending time with you again next week. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.